0: Got your Bible, Song of Songs, chapter 1, uh, verse 5 to 17. We're just uh, heading into our series in this beautiful book. We're taking a couple of months to work our way through. And if you weren't here last week, uh, can I just encourage you, if you've spent any time in the song before, if you've not spent any time in the song before, can I encourage you? This is going to be a series that points us each week to Jesus. Um, don't be worried, don't be nervous about where we're going to go. You might just, I don't know, even just in the reading this afternoon, a few words in there might just make you giggle. or, or what, That's okay, don't worry. Um, ultimately, ultimately uh, God's word here, as it is on every page, is going to lead us to Jesus. So uh, Song of Songs, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 5, and you'll see, particularly on this uh, first page of the song here, you'll see these headings, she, others, he. Uh, Just to mention, in the original Hebrew, as it's written, we don't get those um, titles, those headings. But it's clear when we translate it into English, just from the grammar, that it's the woman speaking or the man speaking. Uh, But just for our ease, as we go through, I'm going to say she or he, so we know uh, who is speaking. So starting in verse five. She, I'm very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you, who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? He you do not know are most beautiful among women. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherds' tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaohs' chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She, while the king was on his couch. My Nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of mare that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. She, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Let me just pray for us again. Father, these are your words to us. We believe that they are living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that that you would change us, convict us. Make us to be more like our dear Saviour Jesus. and, And more than anything, incline our hearts to him. Bring us to a place of even greater worship and adoration for the one who is our beloved. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, When I was a lot younger, the church that I grew up in, uh, they used to have different speakers come each Sunday. Some of us uh, might come from churches with that kind of tradition. And you didn't really know what type of preacher you were going to have until you turned up on the Sunday. Some Sundays uh, you'd get a preacher who would really warm your heart towards Jesus. Sometimes... Particularly as a young guy, you just be a little bit confused about where he's going. Sometimes, a little bit like the story I'll share with you now, you leave or you're left feeling terrified. One of these kind of preachers who would just preach to you, hell, fire and brimstone and really just put the fear of God into you. And there was one of these occasions, I don't even remember what the guy was preaching on, but I remember the illustration that he used vividly. He was trying to encourage us to to stay away from sin and to deal with sin. In our lives, and he, he used this illustration that, that went a bit like this. He said, Imagine you came into church this Sunday morning, and the, the big screen at the back, imagine on that screen your life was being played. And all of the people in the room were people that you loved, people that trusted you, your friends, your family, all the people in the church. They were all sat there in all the rows, and your life was being played on a reel. All of the good stuff, all of the the good things that you do, they were up there, and you know, the smiles and just people looking at you fondly. But then all of a sudden, it starts to show the real you. It starts to project what goes on in your heart. It starts to show the, the hidden things that you do that you hope people would never see. It starts to project all of your sins, all of your struggles the real you. And he said, imagine as you're, you're standing there at the back and all of this is being played out for everyone to see. Just imagine the look of disgust in people's faces. And he said, imagine Jesus is there as well. The very one who died for your sins. Imagine just row by row, your friends and family looking at what they see on the screen, looking at you, getting up out of their seats and walking out in disgust. And imagine Jesus doing the same. And he came to his point in the preaching. He said, you don't want to be that person who is filled with shame and guilt because of your sin. You don't want Jesus. You don't want your friends, your family to think of you like like that. So stay away from sin. And I kind of get what he was going after. But let me just put it straight here. That is a terrible, terrible execution about how the Lord deals with us. I'll tell you what that did for me. It was meant to, you know, put the fear of God into me and keep me away from sin. But I'll tell you what it did for me. It it just made me hide. Because the reality is I and everyone else in the room and the preacher included, we go out of that room and we continue to sin. And when we sin, the man has just said, okay, just... Just don't go there. Like It's expected that you, you shouldn't be someone who does that because it, if you do, you'll carry shame and guilt and people around you will be disappointed. Jesus will be disappointed. And you don't want to engage in those type of relationships. So don't do it. But the fact is I did do it and everyone else did. It. And so what I did in response was I just hid it. I didn't want people to feel guilty. I didn't want to feel the guilt and shame of people seeing what I did. So I just hid it. And what I did for year after year was just portrayed and put this mask of good, Kneel. Righteous kneel. Godly kneel. And I never let that mask down. And I made sure that no one knew about the, the sins that I was struggling with. And no one knew about the darkness in my heart because I didn't want them to be disappointed with me. I wanted them to like me and I wanted them to love me. So I hid. And actually that is, that is really the, the, the culture that we live in. The culture that we live in is a culture where we're expected to hide our true selves. Think about those of us who engage in social media. For the most part, most social media platforms perpetuate this this culture of hiding the real you. Like before you put that photo up that you've taken of yourself or your family or your home or that, that holiday, whatever it is. Before you put that photo up, you've got to check that it's taken from the right angle. Like I know certain people who literally the same pose, they will take 10 10 shots of that same pose. Why? I don't know. But they do it because they want the perfect picture. And they give us all sorts of different filters to put on to make sure it's got the right light and and, and we're we're taking it from the right angle and we're presenting this perfect image of us when the reality is it isn't us. It's a filtered version of us. Before that photo goes up, the expectation (coughs) is, is that we curate it and we mould it to fit the cultural standard of beauty. See, see, our culture has a picture of what it is to, to be the perfect man, to be the perfect woman, to be the perfect husband and wife, to have the perfect home, to have the perfect holiday, the, the perfect experience. And culture says, this is what it looks like. And here are the filters that you need in order to make your life look like that standard of beauty. So filter that image before you put it on or you won't get the likes. And folks, we want people to like us. And so we hide behind the real us, behind this curated image. And folks, it isn't just about our appearance, some of us aren't on social media, but we still engage with the same wrestle. And the different places that that we live in our workplace, in in our families, just wherever it is, we are are faced with, with this standard of, of, of what, is, what is beautiful or what is successful or what is great. And we constantly fall below it and we find ourselves asking the question, okay, am I enough? Am I enough to be great? Am I enough to be successful? I'm, am I enough to be beautiful? And whereas we might not hide behind a filtered image that goes on social media, we hide behind filtered Works or curated works, even in church folks. Like I know most of us here, we get that God is our saviour, we get that God is our king, we get that he is our redeemer, we get that he is our creator. But I wonder whether we're all convinced that he likes us. Like, I know that, that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I know the extent that he's gone to, 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 to make things right between me and God. I know that I've been brought into peace with him. But, but I wonder how many times we find ourselves, because of the things that we do, looking in the mirror and thinking, does he even like me? Like, I get if he tolerates me. But does he actually like me? What we find in our passage here in Song of Songs... Is a spectacular message of hope for those who are hiding. For those who are hiding behind the filtered image. For those who are hiding behind the filtered works. We find a spectacular message of hope. Mm -hmm. Last week, we just built a bit of a foundation for this beautiful song. And we we, uh, uh, just put it out there that this is a collection of love songs written about a bride and her husband, and and they're preparing for marriage. And at different points in the song, we hear these different voices. Last week, we heard the bride and her friends. This week, we hear the voice of the husband coming into the song. And we established last week that this is a song about human marriage. But it's also much more than that. The song invites us in. Like all good songs do, it invites us in to share in the experience to share the experience predominantly with the woman as she prepares for marriage. We're invited to share the experience, to, to be drawn into the song. But as we're drawn in, it wants us to be drawn up, drawn upwards to Jesus. The song is there to lift us up, to help us see our relationship with Christ. It's bringing us into this picture that we see all the way through scripture of how Christ relates to the church how Christ relates to the church as a faithful husband to his bride. And we see all the way through scripture that Christ, as a faithful husband would do, pursues his bride, pursues his bride with with unfailing love, with faithfulness, with sacrifice, with honour and with intimacy. And as we see that picture, not just necessarily in the Song of Songs, but all the way through the scriptures, it's not telling us that we're physically married to Jesus, it's not, it's not saying that, that, you know, you see a husband and wife in, in, a, in a human sense. Like, that's exactly what our relationship is like with Jesus. That's not what it's saying. In the same way that we call God our Father, in the same way that isn't about a biological relationship, in the same way in, in which we might talk about the church being a house, but we know it's more than that. In the same way, when we talk about Christ being married to the church, we're talking about a spiritual reality, Okay. We're not talking about about physical realities that will end, okay, at some point. That's why a husband and and a wife, they come together and they are called one flesh because that's going to end one day. Hopefully it's not a shock to you if you're married, like you're not going to be married for eternity. This is a spiritual reality we're talking about here. Christ is engaged in a deep covenantal intimacy with the church. And human marriage points us to that. And can I just say this? Um, If you're not married, you're part of our Liberty family here, if you're sitting and listening to this and you're not married, please, as we work through the song, please don't think this has got nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with you. If you are a believer, if you are born again, you will experience more intimacy with Christ than the best marriage in this world will. You will. And it will endure for all eternity. We're coming back to our passage this afternoon, in our passage verses five to seventeen, here we get a bit of a duet between the bride and the husband. A bit of a Shawn Mendes and Camilla Cabello. There you go, Sonny and Cher for. Um, for I shouldn't have pointed that. That was really rude. Sonny and Cher for some more mature folks uh, with us. We get this this love song, this duet between the the man and the woman. And the duet starts with the the woman just kind of in her soul, she's being honest. She's being honest particularly about, about a struggle that she has with her image. Her, her image seems to fall below the cultural standard of beauty. Now, it's interesting, right? 4,000 years later, a lot of us still struggle with the same thing, don't we? We see this, this uh, perception that's given to us in culture of what it is to be beautiful, and we fall below it. And we feel the insecurity of being in that space in between. We struggle, as she does, with with being someone who is really known, who is truly known for who we are and being liked. That's what we struggle with. And she struggles with the same thing. And the bride really elevates it to the point that really matters. There is a struggle between being known, being known truly for who we are and being liked, but she takes it to where, where it really matters She is really portraying the struggle of being known and being loved. And really, that is the that is the hope of every human heart. To be known, to be truly known and to be loved. Listen to this from Tim Keller. It will pop up on the screen here. Tim Keller said this: To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. So just stop there for a second. He's saying this. Okay. We can be loved, but. But, but, but it could be a filtered version of ourselves. Okay, that, that picture that we put on, on Instagram or, or, or that, that perfect presentation of ourselves that hides behind those curated works. People may love us when they see that, but they, they're only loving a false version of ourselves. And so the love that we experience is just superficial because it's not even us. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Okay, so imagine that screen at the front of church and and all of your true self is being portrayed on that screen. And everyone sees to be known and then for people to respond in light of you, of knowing who you are. Well, that is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, that is what we need more than anything for someone to really know who we are, for someone to know the depths of our soul, to someone, uh, for someone to know all of our, our good works, uh, to, to know our best days, but also to know our worst days and the darkness of our heart, for someone to know all of that, for someone to see the screen and still love us. Well, that is what every human heart craves. That is what our soul longs for. And what we see here with the bride in these verses is that she is known. She is known intimately by her husband. And she's loved. Keller goes on and he says this next. When we are known and loved, it liberates us from pretense. So it means we don't have to throw that filter up. We don't have to hide behind the facade of of, of oh, I'm really this person. No, we can drop the filter. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Really what he's saying is this, to be known and to be loved brings us into a place where we can be safe. Where we can be safe. Where we know that we can be ourselves and we won't be judged. We, where we know that we can be ourselves and we won't be rejected. To be known and to be loved is to find ourselves in a place of safety. And look how this plays out for the woman in the song. And just, folks, can I just emphasize again, as we see the way that the husband relates to the woman here, elevate this to the spiritual reality which God's people find, find themselves in, the reality of, of Christ engaging with us in the same way. So see first in verse five, she, she says, I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. And she's talking to her friends about about, about the, the tone of her skin. She says, my skin is like the tents of Kedar, The, the tents of kedar were, were these uh, dark, coarse, black goat skin tents that were used out in the desert. And she's saying like, my skin is rough. It's dark. But also at the same time, she compares it to the curtains of Solomon. These were, were just beautiful, perfect, Curtains which hung in the temple and, and they certainly weren 't made of goat skin, they were ornate and spectacular, so you have this this tension between her skin, her seeing her skin as something which is is dark and and is tough, and then it being something which is beautiful and I think what she 's inviting us into is just the tension between feeling the beauty of how she looks and and just the tension of not really living up to some of the expectations in culture as to what she should look. We see that as she goes on here in verse six. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So just so we're clear, folks, this isn't an issue of race and color that she's talking about here. This is a comment about her her social insecurities. So the context for the Song of Songs is during this time, if you were from a wealthy family, not like today, then, then you wouldn't spend your time outside in the fields. You wouldn't be working. You wouldn't be getting your hands there. So you'd be inside, probably getting educated. And in the Middle East in particular, you wouldn't be out in the burning sun. You wouldn't be out in the midday sun. But she is. She's had to go out. It sounds like she's been forced to work there. She talks of her mother's son. So these aren't her brothers, maybe her stepbrothers, they've almost forced her to go out to walk in the vineyard. And it feels like, you know, the financial situation is such that she's having to go out and get her hands dirty. And as she's out there, she's working in the heat of the day in the vineyard and it's burning her skin. It's darkening her skin. And she reflects at the end of verse 6 that because she's been working out in the day, she has no time to look after her own vineyard. She's speaking poetically here about her own physical appearance, her own beauty, not being able to tend to herself because she's been so busy outside. And her sunburned skin here, folks, it's a reflection of her lower class. And she feels the pressure of the daughters of Jerusalem looking down on her. Don't look at me because I look like this. She feels the pressure of others looking down on her. It's interesting it's interesting how culture determines beauty, isn't it? So back in her day, tanned skin was a sign of poverty. Like it was a sign that a woman was having to go out and work. Whereas today, it's the opposite, isn't it? If you've got tanned skin, that's usually a sign of, of wealth. You've been on a, a nice holiday or, or you mix in certain circles. But it's interesting, isn't it, how culture likes to prescribe what beauty is. Culture likes to, to prescribe to us what greatness is, what success is. And when we don't conform to those things, we feel we feel the eyes of others looking on us. What do we do if we feel that pressure? Well, in verse 7, she sings to the man: Tell me you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. So she sings to the man, she seeks him out because she knows that with him, she feels safe. She asks that question, rhetorical question, why, why can't I be with someone who doesn't have to veil, veil, veil myself? Why can't I just be who I am with someone? Well, the answer to the rhetorical question is she can. She can be that woman with her man. And in verse eight, he replies, if you do not know her, most beautiful among women, following the tracks of the flock, he says, Okay, if you don't know how to find me, this is how you come to me. He's telling his wife, Come and find me. Come to me. And in verse 9 to 17, he tells her and he shows her in no uncertain terms, Listen, I know you. I know you. I really know you. And I love you. I know you and I love you. That's in contrast to the judging eyes of culture. I know you and I love you. And because that is true for her, she's able to find safety, she's able to find acceptance and she's able to find a welcome with him. In verse nine, he says this, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So we'll see later on some of the comparisons that this man makes like with, you know, the woman being something, something else, like they don't really work in our culture. Um, don't call your wife a horse. Okay. That's one thing we can be clear from this. But for him, he's, he's looking out in, in his, in his kind of cultural settings thinking, Okay. What is the greatest thing that I can see? And Pharaoh's horses were great. They were the greatest of the horses. They were well known. There were, there were tales of, of, of just how beautiful and how ornate they were and how powerful they were. And he says, okay, he's looking out and he's seeing the best thing that he can find. Say. He's saying, that's what you're like. You are the best of women. And in verse 10, he, he desires her beauty and he just sees her beauty being even more enhanced with jewellery. And in verse 12, she comes back to the picture that we introduced last week, this picture of him being her sweet-smelling king. And she begins to talk about her own fragrance. She talks about about nard. And nard was was an expensive fragrance that came only from India. And it was a no-expense-spared type of fragrance. You might know, if you think in the Gospels, um, Mary, when she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, it was nard that she uses it was expensive and it showed to the other person that they were worthy that they were treasured that they were adored that's what she's saying of Herman. and then in verse 13 we get his fragrance his fragrance is like a sachet of mer it's more perfume it was uh, the picture here is is um quite often young women as they were preparing to be married they would wear a, a necklace with a a sachet of mare, a, a container with this sweet perfume locked inside. And she says that, that you are like this, this mare kind of close to my chest here. A sachet of mare that lies between my breasts, she says. And now, folks, this is one of the, the, the verses that some of the interpreters, they just go wild on it. And the, the translations that they come out with are just fascinating, to say the least. Some would say, that this picture here, when they, they look at the spiritual reading of it, they would say, well, well, the way to read this is the, is the, um, the breasts are like the old covenants and the new covenants, and Christ is, is what's in between. Christ is the bridge in between the old and the new. His sweetness, his sweet fragrance is what brings us from old into the new. And there's nothing in the text that says that that is what's going on here. There's nothing in scripture, I think, that says that's what's going on here. Really, what is going on here? is that she is trying to to show us as we're invited into the song that, that his close presence is a delight to her. Like it's right up against her on her chest. And that sweet fragrance that comes from, I don't know, maybe that was his perfume. Maybe Mare was his cologne. And when she smells it, she's reminded of him. And what she's reminded of delights her. She uses another perfume in verse 15 that reminds Hair of him, Hannah blossoms from Engedi. Engedi was an oasis in the desert, a place of rest, a place of refreshment. I think what she's saying is this in the presence of this man, where she can be who she really is, where she can be really, truly known, in the presence of this man, where she is known, she finds delight and she finds peace. And this part of the song here ends with a wonderful exchange of them just admiring each other's beauty. Verse 15, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Verse 16, she says, Behold, you are beautiful. My beloved, truly delightful. Folks, this is a beautiful picture of human love as it should be. And it is idealized, okay? It's an idealized picture, it's a, a perfect picture of what a relationship between a husband and a wife should be like. And it is a picture of a relationship filled with words of affirmation, words of adoration, mutual delight. So husbands and those who aspire to be married, take note. It is biblical to verbalize your delight in your wife. Tell your wife that she is lovely. Tell your wife that she is delightful. Adore her with your words. Sing her praises. Allow her to feel safe in your presence with who she really is. When she makes mistakes, when she she stumbles into sin, don't look at her with judging eyes. Make sure that she feels safe in your presence. Make sure that she knows that, that she is your standard of beauty, not some sort of fabricated woman that we find in culture. Husbands, you should aspire to this. Wives, the same. But we all need to know that no human relationship will live up to this ideal. Even the best of marriages will fail to bring the full healing that we need to meet our insecurities. Folks, even in the best of marriages, we find ourselves hiding and throwing up filters. Remember, this song is never intended to be a manual for marriage. There is wisdom here to be gained at a human level, but really, we want to read this spiritually. We want to see Jesus as the faithful husband to his bride, the church. And when we do that, as we read this song, we're invited to hear Jesus say over us, say over his church, I know you and I love you. I know you and you are my beloved. And if we're honest, our reflex is often to go maybe where the, the woman is starting to go in verse five, five and six and say, well, you can't love me because I don't, I don't meet this standard. I don't act in that, the, the way that I know I should do. I'm not righteous like I should do. I, I, I've been engaged in, in this sin and I, and I don't meet the standard of perfection, the standard of righteousness that, that I should meet. So, so how can you love me? If you really knew who I was, how could you say that I am your beloved? Well, listen to this from Richard Sibbs. He's a, another Puritan who um, Song of Songs is probably his favourite book, and he just masterfully writes about how we can see Christ in this book. And this is what he says. Just throw it up for us, Caris. Richard Sibbs says, "Christ sees His own face, His beauty." His glory in his church. She reflects his beams. He looks in love upon her and always with his looks conveys grace and comfort. And the church does reflect back again his grace. Therefore Christ loves but the reflection of his own graces in his children. And therefore accepts. And this is what Sibs is saying. Jesus loves us. Jesus delights in us even though he knows us because he sees himself in us. Because when he looks at us, he sees his own perfection being reflected back. How does that come about? Well, the gospel tells us clearly that our sin creates a moral ugliness in us. It's our nature. But even here in this song, we see that Christ leads us into something astonishing. When Christ looks at us, if we are born again, when he looks at us, he doesn't scowl at us. He doesn't turn away from us in disgust. He doesn't walk away from us. No, he walks towards us. And he walks towards us with delight, with adoration. He says, He says, I've come to make you beautiful. The gospel would teach us that in saving us, Jesus takes off our ugly, sinful clothes and he dresses us in his own fine righteousness. And here's what's so spectacular about the gospel. As we see what Jesus has done for us, it isn't that he, he takes off our sinful rags and he clothes us in his righteousness and then everything's okay. No, he takes our sinful clothes and he puts them on himself. And then he walks to the cross and he dies the death that the one who did wear those clothes deserved to die. And he hangs in our place and everything that is desired for our moral ugliness, our sinfulness, he suffers the punishment in our place for us. And now this side of the cross, when we look in the spiritual mirror, we don't need to see our sin. We get to see his gleaming righteousness. Our old sin clothes are gone. And now Christ's perfect record is our record. His perfection is ours. His clean heart is ours. His good works are ours. His obedient law keeping is ours. And so when he looks on us, he isn't disgusted with us. He sees something truly beautiful because he sees himself. And so often we might look at ourselves and look at ourselves in judgment and think, I'm not, I'm not who I should be. I've struggled with this sin again. I've fallen short and below the bar. And we see our moral ugliness. We see, you know, in Isaiah 64, when we see those, those filthy, sinful rags and we see those things. And so what we're prone to do is to throw up the filter and just pretend that we're okay and pretend that we're righteous And as that filter goes up, we maybe feel safe and protected behind it for a moment. But it's thin, it's fragile, and eventually it fails us. And we just end up feeling shamed and guilty. If you are united to Christ, if you are born again, then you get to feel the warmth of his look. You don't need to hide behind a filter. He looks at you and he delights in what he sees. And folks he doesn't pretend when he smiles at you it isn't like a fake you know yeah they they look right no he delights in you Mm. honestly delights in you let me take you back to that TV screen at the front of church imagine imagine it's you imagine you're the one who comes into the church building and all your friends are there all your family are there and Jesus is sitting there and, and it's your life that's on the reel all the good stuff's up there and, and all the real stuff about you is up there and I imagine probably it would be the case that row by row people would get up out of their seats look at you in disgust and walk out the door be disappointed. They might feel the shame and the guilt. They may feel the betrayal. Jesus would still be there. And he'd be looking at you and smiling at you. Not because of the sin, but because of what he's done with that sin. And because of who he has made you to be. And if he's the only one in the room, I can imagine he would say to you, it's okay. I've dealt with all that stuff. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. And now I can't help but smile at you because all I see in you is my own perfection and my own righteousness. Folks, we have done nothing to deserve that. The love of Christ towards us is undeserved. It's unmerited. It is uncalled for, but that's the meaning of grace. The grace of Jesus means we can drop the filter We can be who we are with all of our failures, all of our sin, and all of our brokenness. We can be who we truly are with Jesus and we can still be confident of his love. Folks, as I close, let me ask you this. We know that Jesus is our savior, right? We know that he is our Lord. We know that he is our God. We know that he is our king. Do you really know and believe that he delights in you? That he loves you? Even though he knows you, you are his beloved. Let's pray. Father, that does for some of us, maybe even just in light of where we've been and what we've done this week, for some of us that feels too far of a stretch that you would love us knowing who we are, that you would love us and that you, would, that you would delight in us. Father, thank you that that is a truth for your people. Thank you that we only need to look at the cross to see your love towards us, that you would send your son to die for us to suffer a cruel death that we deserved. And we believe that he has done that for us. We know that that is true. And this side of the cross, Father, I pray that you would help us not just to believe in the finished work of the cross, but also to believe in in how you engage with us through your son. To believe that you saved us from our sins and, and you love us. You delight in us that we are truly your beloved. Jesus, thank you, thank you that you have dealt with the ugliness of our sin and you've clothed us in the beauty of your righteousness. Without your death on the cross, we know that our sin would consume us and would lead us to death. But thank you that because of all that you've done for us, we are saved and we are safe. Convince us that that is true. Convince us that we don't need to throw up filters with you we don't need to conform to to some fabricated standard of of beauty or or greatness or strength that we see in culture thank you that in your presence we can be who we are and we can know that we are safe because you have dealt with our sin and clothed us in your righteousness so holy spirit this week flood our hearts with the love of jesus in those moments where we doubt his love Remind us of who we are. Remind us of what he's done. Remind us of these words that we have heard and meditated on this afternoon. And prompt us again. Prompt us afresh to know and to be convinced of his love towards us. And Jesus, we pray these things in your name and for your glory.